pastors do? That's a good question, isn't it? What do pastors do? Now, we're not going to take the time, but if we had everyone uh, give suggestions, or if we went on the street especially and asked people what pastors do, we'd probably get lots of interesting things. Who's ever read or heard the story of Huckleberry Finn? Yeah, we've all heard that story. Now, one of his uh, acquaintances asked Huckleberry Finn what a pastor does. He said, what, what do pastors do? And he said, oh, nothing much. Loll around, pass the plate, and one thing or another. But mainly, they don't do nothing. That's Huckleberry's take on what pastors do. And then his friend said, well, well what then are they for? He said, why, they're for style. Don't you know nothing? Huckleberry Finn's take on what pastors do. Now, I believe there's a, almost, almost a universal misunderstanding of what pastors are supposed to be doing. If we listen to every opinion on what pastors should be doing, what kind of people they would be, they would say something like this, to, be, to never neglect his wife or children, and if an emergency comes up, he should be willing to neglect his wife and children. Uh, he shouldn't get too out of shape. But he shouldn't be too in shape either, else he get vain. Can't be too old. Can't be too young. Can't be too rich. Can't be too poor. Can't publicly support Donald Trump. Uh, can't publicly resist Donald Trump. Can't volunteer, or he should volunteer for the Red Cross. You need to be a great counselor. You need to be a great preacher. You need to preach deep theology and make it very entertaining at the same time. Not too long, not too short. And for good measure, let's make sure the pastor is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. That's the kind of pastor that would make everyone happy, wouldn't it? Everybody would be at that guy's church. Now, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of mixed messages for pastors today. And I like to do reading about pastors and do, uh, read books on pastoral ministry. I enjoy that. And I enjoy hearing what people have to say in the public about pastoral ministry. It's something I enjoy hearing. But with that being said, with all these things and all the possible complaints that pastors could make about these mixed messages, I still don't have any time for pastors who whine and complain about their jobs, okay? Because they knew, they should have known what they were signing up for. And I fully admit that I have a very, very long way to go. But here's my point. I want to turn it back around. If there's this much misunderstanding about what pastors should do for their churches, I want to submit to you that there is more misunderstanding about the church's responsibility towards its pastors. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. That's why the title for my message tonight is The People and Their Pastors. And we're going to see a very high calling in this passage for church members for you as a congregation, except for the pastors who are in the congregation right now. There are several, so you quite a few <laughs> in this little room. But I want you to think of five points of view in this passage. First point of view is from the original readers. This was the church that this letter was originally written to. And the second point of view is the pastors who were with them at the time, who were with this church when this letter was being written to them. And then the third point of view is the author of Hebrews, who was one of their leaders, but was separated for them for some reason. I'm not sure what the reason was, but he was separated for, for a time. And then there's you, and then there's me. Five different viewpoints. 
that we can think about regarding this passage. So tonight, I have the privilege of telling you what this pastor told those people about how they should respond to their pastors. That's my job tonight. But I think you will see that there's tons of relevance for us tonight, and everything that he told them to do toward their pastors is exactly what we should do for our pastors today. Lots of great information for us in this passage. So the focus in this passage is on the congregation's responsibilities, their responsibilities toward their pastors, outlines very, very basic responsibilities and tells us at the same time why they are worth it. And at the same time, there's a lot for pastors to hear in this passage too. So with that being said, I want to tell you two responsibilities that church members have toward their pastors, two responsibilities. Let's look at number one, following the leaders, following the leaders, verse 17. The first responsibility outlined here is that believers should follow the leadership of the leaders that God has placed over them. You say, wow, that's really confusing, isn't it? It's very, very straightforward. You say, okay, well, where are you going to go with this passage, Stephen? Well, we need to go where this passage goes. So let's do it. Read verse 17 again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, following the leaders, our first responsibility mentioned here, we need to understand five different things in this responsibility to follow the leaders that God has placed over us. Five things we need to understand. First, we need to understand the authority of their work, the authority of the pastoral ministry. So there's a twofold command. Notice that in verse 17, a twofold command that says, Obey your leaders. In case you didn't hear that, it says, and submit to them. It says both. Now, did he just think, did he just say what I think he just said? He did, didn't he? He said obey, and then he said submit. Congregations obeying and submitting to their pastors. Now, I do want to point out that this is a real authority. This is a real authority that pastors have. The Greek word for obey here, patho is usually found in the context of persuasion. You're won over to something because you've been persuaded to do so. And the other word for submit means to yield to someone's authority, to give way, to go with their direction. Simple words. Just like a trail guide. You're following a trail guide. If he goes north, you go north. If he turns right, you turn right. If he turns left, you turn left. That's simply what it's talking about here. But together, these words mean a willful and informed decision to follow the leadership of somebody else. It's willful and it's informed. And it's a real authority that God has given to his under-shepherds. And here God is calling believers to follow and submit to that direction. So before you say, okay, wow, let me think about this. Do I want to be up here or down there? Sign me up. I want to be up here. That's what I want to do. If it's real authority, then sign me up for this job. But hold on a second. We need to think about some more things. I need to tell you, too, that it's not just a real authority. It's also a derived authority. It is a derived authority. Turn to 1 Peter 5, a passage you're familiar with. 1 Peter 5, look at the first verse. I'll start reading that verse. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, and then he qualifies himself as a fellow elder, 
doesn't put themselves ab above these pastors. He's a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. And what does he tell them to do? Shepherd the flock of God among you, in verse 2. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sort of gain, but with eagerness, etc. But look what he says in verse 4. You have Peter, who's an elder. He's talking to his fellow elders. But who is the ultimate authority in this passage? It says, when the chief shepherd, when the pastor who's above all pastors, when he appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Pastors do not have an autonomous authority. They do not have an unbridled authority. It's not an absolute authority. It's a derived authority that pastors have. And I want you to notice, too, the type of leadership that the author is talking about in this verse. It's also a team authority. It's a team authority. It's not a call to give your undying allegiance to a pastor dictator who is this person who's all by himself, who just comes up with his own opinions and then makes everyone do them. It's not what it's talking about. It's actually a group of people. This is a team of leadership. It's a group of biblically qualified pastors. And isn't that always a New Testament pattern? A plurality of elders, a group of pastors, which, by the way, leaders, pastors, overseers, elders, all the same person, all the same office in the New Testament. And they are called as a group to lead the church together. And that's the biblical pattern. Every time a local church is established, they need a group of qualified men to lead it. That's what we see in the book of Hebrews. Look at uh, just up at verse 7 in the book of Hebrews 13, uh, chapter 13. It says, remember those who led you. Talking about a group. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 24. It says, greet all of your leaders. Again, we're talking about a group of leaders. It's a team. When Paul was on his missionary journeys and he set up churches, he planted churches, what did he always make sure happened? He always made sure that elders were appointed in those churches. Why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? Some of you all just studied the book of Titus. Why did he leave him there in Crete? What was the first thing he said for them to do? That you appoint elders in every city, just as I directed you. This is a very foundational, fundamental thing that you see all over the New Testament. And a group does a whole lot to make up for the weaknesses of just one person. A whole lot. I can't even imagine doing this job all by myself. I can't even imagine that. But so many people do try to make that happen. So he's told us to obey. He's told us to, to submit. Now, is that easy to do? Very difficult to do sometimes. Sometimes easier than others. But ultimately, this is something that we naturally resist. And there's some hurdles. One is we're born with a resistance to leadership. We're born with that. Uh, whenever you've, you've all, or lots of you in this room have had little babies, and you hold that little baby in your arm in the hospital, and you look into that baby's eyes, and you say, I'm going to do, I would do anything for you. And you know what that baby's looking up at you and smiling? You know what that baby's thinking? I will never listen to what you have to say. That's what that baby's thinking with that cute little smile. We are born with the resistance to any kind of authority. Another reason is that people don't want to be micromanaged. Say, well, if I submit to this, then they're going to try to micromanage me. And by the way, pastors should not do that. Or maybe they don't agree with the direction. That's another reason. But the big one is this. The big one is that you cannot follow someone that you do not trust. 
especially if that person has given you a reason not to trust or not to be trusted. And there have been countless leaders all throughout history who have proved to be evil and untrustworthy. Authority is a precarious thing in the hands of men. It can be very easily abused. And up to this point in history, authority has actually become a dirty word, hasn't it? But what if the leaders we're talking about could be trusted? What if they could be trusted? Would that make any difference? And what I want to submit to you in this passage is that it makes all the difference. Leaders who can be trusted. This passage is telling us about the kind of leaders who are worth following. Leaders who are dedicated to God's standard of ministry. Leaders who are themselves under the authority of Christ as their chief shepherd. Leaders who are committed to the gospel of Christ, to preaching the truth. Verse 17 is giving us a biblical understanding of church leaders who are worth following. And if they are not walking within the bounds of Scripture, they have no authority. If they're not walking with the parameters that Christ has set for his ministers, they have no authority. And they are not worth following, and the Scriptures would not call you to follow them. This is talking about biblical leadership, which brings us to number two. We need to understand the depth of their work. Physical therapists, what's, what's one of their main concerns in their job that they do every day? They want to make sure that your bones and joints and your muscles are all working right. That's what they want to make sure. They want to make sure you can walk. They want to make sure you can throw, use your arms, different things. What do cooks care about? Your taste buds, your bellies. What do financial advisors care about? They care about how you invest your money, what about mechanics? They want to make sure your car is running well. Okay, that's what they want, ultimately. That's what they are concerned about with their jobs that they do every day. And sometimes pastors end up doing these things, and whenever I end up doing some of these things, it's fine, and I enjoy it. It's a little change of pace. But that is not their calling. That's not what pastors have been called to do. There is something deeper that is at the heart of their work. And what is it? What does the passage say? soul. Soul work. That's what pastors ultimately care about. At the end of the day, a pastor's primary concern is the soul of his people. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them because for they keep watch over your souls. That's the depth of the work. Church members might lose their car. They might lose their money. They might lose their appetite. They might lose their health. And a pastor will and, and can try to do everything he can to help with those things, right? And those are, that's good. But what happens if they get the car they want? What happens if they have perfect health? What happens if they get a ton of money? At the same time, what's the pastor's concern? It's the same. It's still the person's soul. The concern is the same either way. The most important thing about a person is not your looks, not your money, or your education, or your career, or your relationships, or your health. It is the soul of a man. That's why Jesus could say, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's more important than a person's soul? What's deeper about a person than his or her soul? You say, okay, I'm so frustrated about a problem. I told my pastor about this problem with such and such, and I just wanted him to help me with that particular problem. But it's like he's always trying to find something deeper. We need to clarify that. 
he is trying to find something deeper. <laughs> That's what he's looking for. He's always looking for something deeper. He knows that that is his calling. Your soul is his calling. It is a deep work. That's his job. He's always trying to figure out what's going on down in there. So it's just that even after your relationships are good, and after you have a good income, after you have a successful life, does the pastor's job stop? It keeps going. That's why you can have a church with rich people, have a church with poor people, have a church with healthy people, have a church with sick people. But why are they all there? They're all there because the soul needs to be strengthened. The pastor's work is a deep work. It's beneath the surface of flesh and blood and bank accounts. And it's also an intense work. Number three, we need to understand the intensity of their work. By raise of hand, how many of you, if you could pick any career, any career you wanted to do for the rest of your life, how many of you would say, I want to sign up to be a property manager? No one raised their hand. Why did you not raise your hand? Well, if you want to be a successful property manager, you always have to be alert, don't you? You always have to be ready. If you have a tenant who has a flood in their house in the middle of the night, who are they going to call? Are they going to call the plumber? They're going to call you and ask you to call the plumber. What about if a hurricane is coming? Who is going to care about all the properties, however many you might have? Who is going to bore up the windows? Who is going to put out the sandbags? All the tenants? Maybe, maybe not, but you have to make sure that all those things are protected. You have to protect your investment. You have to always be alert if you're going to be a successful property manager. And many, many jobs that many of you have, we could go on and on with illustrations, but you have to be alert. It's an intense thing that requires constant attention. It's always something that's on your mind. You always have to be ready. But verse 17 says they keep watch over your souls. And literally in Greek, this word means that they are sleepless. This is a sleepless work. Pastors are constantly at work doing things for the health of your soul. Biblical pastors are always keeping watch. They're always on the watchtower. They're always on the lookout for danger. Uh, if there's ever a loud thud in our boys' room in the middle of the night, it's like all of a sudden Savannah, it's like she'd been awake and she's ready to start an Olympic race and she's there to take care of whatever happened. And I'm just trying to like barely roll out of bed at that point. But it's an alertness. You're ready. When you hear any sign of danger, you're there. That's what a biblically qualified pastor does and spends his time doing it. There's some essentials for this. Pastors are always praying for their people. There's so much that a pastor can be doing without you ever even knowing it. Praying for you in private. Exhorting you in person, in the truth. One-on-one -on -one counseling for specific issues. Teaching the truth. Not trying to convince you of his own opinions, but teaching the truth that's laid down in Scripture and preserving the truth week after week by preaching the word, which Christ has called us to do. Would a pastor's week be much, much easier if he didn't really prepare any messages? Yeah, this would be a much easier job if you never had to prepare any messages. That is a time-consuming, mind-altering experience, doing exegesis on a passage and preparing to deliver it to a person. It would be much easier to just drop that. But we are called to preserve the truth. That's why Paul told Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure, the good deposit, which has been entrusted to you. 
You have to guard this. That's why Paul told Timothy to preach the word. Do it when you feel like it. Do it when you don't feel like it. Don't stop doing it. Why? Because the time is going to come when people will not put up with the truth. You have to keep preaching. You have to preserve the truth. This is what pastors do. This is how they stay alert and watch over the souls of their people. And the only message that can save your soul, heal your soul, restore your soul is the truth of God's word. It has to be preserved. The day we stop preserving the truth is the day this ship sinks. We also need to understand the accountability of their work. If you were thinking about becoming a pastor, this is where you think again. The accountability of their work. It says they keep watch over your souls, but it doesn't stop there. It says, as those who will give an account. Now, does this mean that we are not accountable for our own sins? Does that mean you, as a church member, are not accountable for your own sins? No, you're still accountable. Paul says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us will have to do that. But on the other hand, this is a serious accountability for God's leaders, for the leaders of God's people, a real accountability. God takes this very seriously, and you see this throughout God's, uh, through the history of God's people, you see it in the watchmen of Ezekiel 33. Turn back to Ezekiel 33. Some of you heard this story, some of you have not. God is commanding Ezekiel what he's going to prophesy, how he's going to prophesy, and he uses this illustration of a watchman. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but it says, if a watchman, if he sees danger coming, say he's up on the guard post, he sees danger coming, and he responds, he blows the trumpet to warn the people, but if the people don't listen, and they get wiped out, then whose fault is that? It's the people's own fault. They had the warning, but they didn't heed it. But then God flips the illustration over. He says, but... If a watchman sees the swords of the enemy gleaming in the distance, he sees danger coming, and the watchman doesn't do a thing about it, and the people get wiped out, then God says the blood of those people is on the watchman's hands. He saw the danger but did nothing about it, and I'm holding him accountable. And so God tells Ezekiel, he says, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. You are the watchman. This is your warning. This is your job description. This is what you have to do. This is your accountability as my prophet. If you don't warn them, Ezekiel, their blood will be on your hands. You see the same accountability in the next chapter. Turn over to the next chapter, Ezekiel 34. Look at verse 2. There were leaders of Israel that God had... Been, he was done putting up with them. He had run out of patience. And he had a plan for them. Verse 2, he says, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Logical question. They were omitting this. Verse 4, it says, Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force, and they've neglected all these things, but listen to this, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. He's about to hold them accountable. Verse 5, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Verse 6, my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, 
and the shepherds weren't there. There was none to search or seek for them. And what does God think about this? God okay with these shepherds? Is he okay with these leaders? Look at verse 10. It says, thus says the Lord God, behold, and then the words that you never want to hear spoken about you. God says, I am against the shepherds. And I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so they will not be food for them. God takes the leadership of his people very seriously, and he holds those leaders accountable for their actions. And you see the same accountability for leaders in the New Testament. You know the passage in James 3, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, why? Knowing that as such we will incur a greater, stricter, Judgment is a serious work. There's an accountability for this work. The Lord will hold every pastor accountable for the work he's done, and it will be a greater level of accountability, a greater level of severity. They're the ones that are given the stewardship of the truth. Did you warn the people of their sin? Did you practice what you preached? Were you alert, or did you just feed yourself? Did you fumble the ball when it came to the deposit of the truth? Did you pass the baton, or did you fail to pass the baton of truth on to the next generation? They will be held accountable. Now, at this point, it would be easy to check out and say, wow, I guess this is a message for pastors after all. And we just get to listen to what pastors have to do. But this passage is about the congregation's responsibility toward their pastors. It's not talking to the leaders at this point. It's talking to people who are under leadership. That's why one commentator said, the leaders are men who will have to give an account to God. And this solemn consideration should affect not only the quality of their leadership, but listen to this, but also the quality of the obedience with which the Christian community responds to that leadership. This passage right here is designed to motivate people within the church to Listen to what their leaders have to say because they have a great level of accountability. Now this thought brings us to the fifth thing I wanted to tell you about verse 17. The fifth thing that we need to understand. You can turn back to Hebrews 13. Number five, we need to understand the joy and grief of their work. The joy and grief of the pastor's work. It says, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Why? For this would be unprofitable for you. It says unprofitable. Unprofitable. Think through this with me. Why would it be unprofitable or, or what would be unprofitable? You have the minister's joy and grief on the one hand and then you have something that be, could be profitable or unprofitable for the church member on the other hand. How does all this fit together? How is all this connected? There's two things I'd like to say about it. First, if you're always giving your pastor a hard time if you're always giving him literally grief for everything he does, listen to this, you will put him to grief. That's not, that's not rocket science, is it? If you're constantly holding him to the fire for everything, you're going to put your pastor to grief. That is a natural principle. The point he's making is that it's not going to be for your good. And this is a little bit counterintuitive. You say, how is it counterintuitive? Think about this. We're resisting leadership in this case. When we resist leadership, why do we do it? Usually, 
we think that we're accomplishing something, don't we? Whenever we resist leadership, we think we're getting something done. We think we're getting our ideas across. We think we're getting our way pushed through. We think we're making progress. Listen to this. But is it really for your good? This passage is saying no. Giving your pastor grief is, the second thing I want to say, either everyone wins or everyone loses. You can't have it both ways. Either everyone wins or everyone loses. This is not a manipulation tactic, by the way. He's not trying to manipulate them. He's not saying, if you obey your pastors, they'll be happy. And whenever your pastors are happy, they give you candy. He's not saying that. He's not trying to manipulate them. There's something else going on here. Think about the watchman scenario back in Ezekiel 33. Think about that. The watchman sounds the alarm, but the people don't care. He gets, the person gets slaughtered. Because they didn't listen. Now, who's the winner in that story? Who's the winner? Nobody's the winner in that story. Someone dies, and the watchman just has the grief of seeing needless death take place. Now, think about how things can get in the church. Whenever I was younger, I heard someone say this. My brothers, we, were, we heard this person say this. This person did not like the pastor at the church. It wasn't Mike, by the way. But he was, he was a great guy. I, he was very kind. But this person said, I will oppose that pastor until the day he dies. Quote, I will oppose that pastor until the day he dies. Who wins in that story? Nobody. Nobody wins in that story. Pastor calls you to repentance, but you go on in your sin. The pastor warns you about a bad decision, but you don't listen. Pastor reminds you about God's promises of his faithfulness, but you say, I don't want that. Who's the winner? No one's the winner. Either everyone wins or everyone loses, because we're doing this together. Now listen to this. When God's people are responsive to God's word, whenever a pastor gets up here and preaches God's word and the people respond and they walk in that truth, they respond to the truth and they don't resist, that is the greatest joy that a pastor can get in his ministry. When people listen to God's word and they love God's word and they live God's word, that's one of the greatest joys a pastor can ever experience. And that's why John said, I have no greater joy than this. Than what? Hear my children walking in the truth. No greater joy. No greater joy. The minister gets the joy and you get the benefit of walking in God's truth. So what's your view of biblical authority? Think about it. What is your view of biblical authority? I know we have different views on authority in general, but what's your view on what the Bible has to say about authority? And how is this first challenge things that you used to think about biblical authority? Think about that and pray about that this week. But biblical pastors, they can't do this alone. This is a very, very serious calling. You see the five things. This is very serious stuff. And this pastor, this author, is humble enough to say, there's a second responsibility. He's humble enough to say, I need you to do something else. And what's the second thing he's mentioning in this passage? What is the second responsibility that congregants have toward their pastors? Praying for the leaders. In really, really tiny letters on the screen. That is not a reflection of how important I think this point is. Praying for the leaders. Look at verse 18. Pray 
for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Here you have the command, you have the reason, you have the urgency, and you have the power of praying for the leaders. Let's look at the command. The first part of verse 18. He says what? Pray for us. This is the responsibility. Pray for us. Saying, take time out of your busy week, and all of us are busy. He's saying, take time out of your busy schedule, think about your pastors, go before the throne of God, and make specific prayer requests to God for your pastors. This is a command. Pray for us. Take the time and do it. That's the command. Now, have you ever thought about this as a Christian duty? Have you ever thought about praying for your pastors as something that you should be doing. It's easy to think, yeah, it would be great if I could do that. Or, oh, yeah, I should have done that. Oh, or, as Mike's preaching, I really wish I'd have you know, prayed for the service before all this happened. I wish I'd have prayed. No, this is a duty that Christians have, something that we are commanded to do. He's saying, pray for us. Then he gives a reason for it in the second part of verse 18. It says, pray for us, for because we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. I say, well, what's that here for? I think this is what it means. This is somewhat of a difficult part of the verse, but I believe he's saying that to the best of my ability as a leader, to the best of my knowledge, I desire to conduct myself honorably in everything that I do. In my whole ministry, I desire to do the right thing. I desire to view the authority that I have as being under the Lordship of Christ. I desire to be alert and awake as I watch over your souls. I desire to have my focus in the right area. I desire to take care of your soul. I have the right desires and I have a conscience that's clean in this regard. This is the kind of pastor I want to be. And so in other words, he's saying, I'm not asking you to pray for something that I don't desire. I do desire this. And I'm not asking you to pray for something that is a major stumbling block in my life. I want this, and I'm pursuing this, and I believe by God's grace I'm doing this, so please continue to pray for me. You know me. You know what I'm about, but I need God's help. That's the reason he gives to them. And then number three, the urgency of this prayer. Moving on to verse 19, he says, and I urge you all the more to do this. He's saying, keep on doing this. All the more, he says. Even more, to a much greater degree than you were before. Far more, far greater. Do this more and more. Don't lighten up as time goes on. Keep doing this more and more. Keep praying for your pastors. This is an urgent thing. Paul said the same thing to the Romans. He says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, I urge you to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Paul had the same request. He said, you please pray for me, and I urge you to do this. I urge you to strive with me in praying for me. We do this no matter what. Have you ever been frustrated with your pastor? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever been frustrated or angry or upset or disappointed in your pastor? What should you do? You should pray. You should pray for your pastor. Jonathan Edwards said this. Listen to this. I forgot to put it up on the board. He said, if some Christians that have been complaining of their ministers, if those people had said 
and acted less before men, and if they would instead have applied themselves with all their might to cry, to cry to God for their ministers, for their pastors, if they had done that, they would, as it were, had risen and stormed heaven with their humble, fervent, and incessant prayers for them, and they would have done much more toward the way of success. You've been angry at your pastors, and you just get more and more angry, and you do less and less of anything that's associated with prayer. But think about this. When you're upset with your pastors, pray for them. Have you ever been happy with your pastor? What should you do? Pray for your pastor. No matter what, keep doing. This is an urgent appeal. Keep praying. Whether the church is weak, whether the church is strong, keep on doing this. Because there's power in it. There is power in prayer. Number four. Something very simple. Something that you can read over very quickly and miss at the end of verse 19. But look what he says. Pray for us. Why? So that I may be restored to you the sooner. Say, well, that's powerful. It is powerful. Listen to what we just said. Pray so that I may be restored to you the sooner. This author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is expecting that if they pray, it will change things. It will. There is power in prayer. It is effective. This is what God has called us to do, to pray. Significant times of growth in the church since Pentecost have always been the result of new covenant people banding together and praying. It's always been the result of prayer. The world needs the gospel. There's much work to be done. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. He's here on earth with his, with his people, and he gives them instructions, tells them that power is going to come from on high, and then what do they do right after that? They pray. 120 people in a room in Acts chapter 1 pray. And then what happens? Pentecost. Think back to Jesus' earthly ministry. The harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. So what's the very first thing Jesus tells them to do? There's a ton of work to do. There's not many workers. What's the first step? Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest. Beseech him. Request to God. Ask him to send out those workers. That's what we're called to do. Same thing went on as Paul went through his ministry. Paul prays. For, he asked him to pray for his ministry. Colossians 2, or Colossians 4, 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. He's saying, please pray. Please keep praying for the ministry because there's power in prayer. This is where the power is at. 2 Corinthians 1, same thing. Paul expects that the prayers of the Corinthians are going to be effective. He says, you also, in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Paul expects that these prayers are going to be effective. Same thing in Ephesians 6. He says, and pray on my behalf. Why? The utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Paul, the guy who wrote Romans. Paul, the guy who wrote Ephesians. Colossians, Philippians. He's saying, please pray for me for the utterance of my mouth. See, 
You don't need that, Paul. Yes, he does. He needs help. He needs the Spirit. He is nothing without the Spirit. He needs God's power to preach the gospel and for the word to be spread. He says the same thing to the Philippians. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. He's there sitting in prison while he's writing to them. He said, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. How? Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon. Many of you have heard about Spurgeon's church, how there's people praying. You've heard the stories about how there used to be a huge room of people praying while he was preaching. He also, the same thing on Wednesday nights, his Wednesday night prayer meetings would get so packed out that he would tell his people, say, only come every couple weeks or every three weeks so that new people could come and visit. But they were praying. And think about the influence that Spurgeon's ministry still has today. Spurgeon also had the same vision that Paul had, that the author of Hebrews had, that the ministers of the New Covenant and the New Testament times had, that prayer is effective. And this is what Spurgeon had to say. Listen to this. This is what he preached to his people one day in a sermon. He said, oh, may God help me if you stop praying for me. He said, let me know the day. Let me know the day when you stop praying for me. And I must cease to preach. Let me know when you intend to cease your prayers. And I will cry, God, give me this day my tomb and let me slumber in the dust. That's how powerfully Spurgeon thought of prayer. That's how important he thought of prayer. Without the Spirit of God moving in us as pastors through prayer, the minister is only a shell up here. That's it. So do you believe how this is how God works? Do you believe this is how God works? has chosen to work in us? Do you believe that he is sovereignly ordained to work through our prayers? Do you believe this? Or do you believe that we're reading something into the text and these other verses that shouldn't be there? Or do you believe this? Do you believe that your prayers for your pastors truly matter? Do you believe that your prayers for your leaders truly make a difference? Do you believe these things? It is not until we really believe this and we really commit to doing this, really commit to praying for each other, that our church will be what it needs to be, what we could be, the sanctification, the growth that we desire. A biblical pastor won't just think that it's nice if his people pray for him. He won't just think that it'll just be kind of helpful. He must have his people's prayers. Now, as we close, we've talked about two responsibilities, two responsibilities that every church member has toward their pastors. Think about how beautiful a local church could be if these things were being carried out in a healthy way. Pastors were seeing their God-given role that they have, and they were not abusing it. They were doing exactly how Christ commanded it to be done. And think about how a congregation who was following that leadership, think about what a church would be like. Think about what a local church could do for the gospel in a community. Think about how we could point people back to God. Think about that as we pray and ask him to help. Let's pray to him. Lord, we do thank you for this passage. Lord, it's a small passage, but there is a lot in it as rebukes and corrections, exhortations for every single one of us in this room. I do pray, Lord, that we would listen to it. Lord, I pray that we would not just shrug it off. Lord, I pray that we would think deeply about it throughout this week. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that prays. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that sees prayer as something that is truly effective, something you've ordained to accomplish your will through, Lord, that you've told us to do, Lord, that's something that is beautiful, something that is truly life-changing. And Lord, I pray that we would 
learn to love you. Pray that we would submit, Lord, to the authority, ultimately, that Christ has over his church throughout the entire world. And we do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.